A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, I'm Victoria Meyer, host of The Chemical Show. Today, I am delighted to have with me John Steckla, who is a director at Parent Resources. You may know John as an expert in the olefin industry. He has decades of experience with leading companies, including Chevron, Williams, and CMAI and IHS. John's going to be talking with us about what's going on in the market, olefins, polypropylene, and other great topics. John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Victoria. I'm very flattered and pleased that you invited me to participate. Absolutely. So John, let's just start out. Tell us a little bit about Perrin Resources. Okay. Perrin is a, broadly speaking, a chemical marketing company is the way to put it. It was started about 17 years ago by a a former coworker of mine at at Chevron Chemical, where most of my career, almost 28 years had been, Mark Brueggemann. And Mark invites very experienced chemical veterans, once they finally take their retirement from big companies to join him and bring some of their expertise and connections to to the company. And so we try to fill the gap between very large producers and perhaps the mid and smaller sized customers. And so we have collectively well over 300 years of experience amongst the 10 principles that are actively involved in, in parent. I bring a lot of olefins, ethylene and propylene experience. We've got a glycol expert. We have a refinery and another propylene expert, alpha olefin expert. And so we try to bring our experience that we then share with a lot of companies and really in a lot of respects look at ourselves as problem solvers. We ask, what's your biggest problem? What either can't you find or what can't you get rid of? And so we do quite a bit of business in byproduct streams and finding homes for unloved streams. Nice. So I know as a result of that, um, you guys, you in particular, get involved with a lot of the new petrochemical assets and investments here in North America. So, I mean, we've seen a huge wave of investments in petrochemicals over the past decade. You've been working closely with them. What do you see as the opportunities and the challenges that come as a result of these investments? You know, it was interesting, recycling a little bit, that after I left Chevron after 28 years where I really started my petrochemical career. I was at IHS for about five and a half years. And it was a superb time to be the ethylene and feedstocks guy there because for the first two years, I was writing obituaries about the United States petrochemical industry. We had shut down about 8% of the ethylene capacity in North America, and there was no light in the horizon. And then the miracle of shale developed. All of a sudden, cheap feedstocks came in. And by the time I left... I was just writing birth announcements after birth announcements. And so it was a tremendous inflection point for the industry, which is just fascinating to be a part of. So what we are seeing is a continuation of that boom. And and typically what you're doing when you're looking at locating your plant, you're really chasing the cheapest feedstocks that you can find. And that's kind of the good news, bad news of the United States in which our prices are set by free market dynamics. 
And so you are very sensitive to supply and demand, and that's going to drive the cost of your feedstocks. Most other places in the world, especially ethane, is set by some government decree, by formula, by some other factor. And so it is a little bit more fixed, but then availability might not be as generally just available. Now, one of the things I had done, and if you invite me back, perhaps we can go into a little more detail, but I had done some work on what drives the price of ethane, which was really the motivator for bringing it in. And now that we're exporting so much, how that affects the export competitiveness of integrated domestic producers. And so I've done some research to say, okay, with the given price of ethane, here's what you can successfully compete against with the given price of Brent crude oil, because that drives the cost structure and otherwise. But I really had to define that because with China becoming so much more self-reliant on production, that's really changing the dynamic a little bit. And since your capital cost of construction in China, probably one third what they are here, that can overcome a whole lot of additional logistics costs to bring in your feedstocks. So, but that's a discussion for another day. So we talked about what's going on here and the opportunities. I think it's, it's changing, right? Because it's uh, supply and demand dynamics. I don't think that you need to be cognizant of what you think your feedstock position is going to be. Will there always be cheap feedstock? One of the things that I think that companies benefit when they come and talk to us early, and I had this with IHS, is that we have relatively short memories in the industry. And if you've only been involved since, say, 2008, 2009, you're going, boy, ethane is is correlated to natural gas and it's cheap, will be cheap forever. Well, you forget that for the previous 20 years, we were the highest price ethylene producer in the world because ethane prices were so high and extremely variable. So you, know, you really have to take the, the long-term view. So in investment here, we're recognizing that you're building your plants for the export markets totally. All the domestic markets are well satisfied. We really don't import much, any of the olefins chain. We're all looking for the export markets. So one, you've got to make sure that the export demand will remain there. Two, you'll be in a cash cost position cash cost of production position to support those exports. And typically, if you look back in history, that you need somewhere between eight to 10 cents a pound production advantage to cover your export logistics costs. Hmm. It's a good rule of thumb. Yeah, as a rule of thumb. But when it comes to producing plants here, I think that it is appearing that the states are becoming a little bit less supportive of projects. They still are. Louisiana, very supportive of the Formosa Sunshine Project, which is gigantic. But one of the things that we're seeing that they've been recently sued by two environmental groups. And so I think there's going to be a rise of environmental activism that you just need to be aware of and be prepared to to deal with. Certainly the cost of production has really skyrocketed. And if you look at whatever your engineering forecast is, you could probably increase that by a factor of 40 or 50 percent, which would be more accurate. One of the challenges a lot of people have had is finding experienced operators. If you look at a relatively constrained market like Lake Charles, where we've had several plants built and refining, they'll wait for one company to train the guy and then they poach him away. And so there's this constant revolving circuit of experienced maintenance or people in support. So, you know, finding an adequate supply of workers has been a challenge as well. So it's still a good place to build. still think that there's land. I still think that there is feedstock available, although we'll have to start bringing in more expensive tranches from directly outside the Gulf Coast area. But it is one of the places you can come in and do your thing. Yeah. Interesting. So the boom that we've seen over the last 10 years, while it seems to have taken a little bit of a pause, you don't think it's necessarily over yet? I think so. 
certainly the global coronavirus pandemic has kind of flattened out the whole market and has caused projects to delay. So we'll just have to see how really the global market just recovers. The other thing I think I might mention is that for companies that aren't in the United States or in North America with investment, it's a challenge to get up to speed to learn how to work in the markets, to learn how to work with the states and kind of understand who the contacts are, you know, working with the local boards for educational boards for tax relief. And so there's a huge learning curve if you're new to the market diving in. Yeah, makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about petrochemical trends. So you mentioned the COVID pandemic. What impact has COVID had broadly on the chemical markets? And, you know, I know we've seen some price spikes and escalation and just certainly supply demand disruptions, but what are you seeing from where you sit? Sure. One of the businesses that we are in significantly is in the propylene chain. We have a pretty interesting refinery propylene and truck and rail business, as well as we're one of the largest marketers of polymer grade propylene in truck and rail in North America. And so we're very sensitive to that market in particular. And I think that that would be a very interesting topic. So maybe we'll go down that a little ways to talk about And so when you look at the pandemic, what happened, right? People started shutting in, they stopped driving, they stopped flying. And so we saw refining operating rates drop off to the lowest levels in history. They've since recovered to about 85% operating rates, which is where they were in going back more than a year. So we're starting to see some increased demand, but especially jet kerosene production dropped off tremendously. Well, when you look at refining operating rates dropping, What else doesn't come out of the pipe? Well, you look at one of the major byproducts is refinery-grade propylene or or propylene molecules. And one of my coworkers, Jerry Winters, who has a long history with Arco Lyondell, had done some analysis of FCC operating rates. And he estimated that as much as 15% or 2.8 billion pounds of propylene, there was that much of a reduction in propylene output from the refineries, which is a tremendous amount. You know, other things we don't really see, sulfur became extremely tight, elemental sulfur, because sulfur gets recovered from sour crudes. It then gets sold off for things like sulfuric acid, for whatever it is. And we saw the price of sulfur at the beginning of last year at about $36 a ton. It's currently $192 a ton. So it's gone up about more than five and a half X sulfur. So anything with this related to sulfur, you know, fertilizers in different applications, we see unexpected consequences like that. So in addition, we saw our ethylene units, our crackers, drop down their operating rates because most ethylene derivatives get used in disposables, in packaging. Now, some products like surfactants was ex- were extremely strong. Yep. Everybody was cleaning. <laughs> Everybody was cleaning, right? And cleaning. So operating rates drifted lower to about, I don't know, 90, 92%, where really you want to run them at 98, 99, 100%. So there was less propylene molecules being produced as well. When you're running ethane feed, you're making about between 3 and 4% of your output will be in propylene molecules. So it's not huge, but with all the crackers, it is significant. And then at your on-purpose production, your PDHs, some of them really struggled to produce. And so if you look at one PDH at, let's say, 500,000 tons, that's equal to more than 10 ethylene units outputs. And so PDH goes down, has a huge impact. That alone will drive your supply and demand balance tight. So we saw less propylene production, right, significantly lower. 
we in fact saw the lowest levels of propylene inventory levels in history as we went into the third and fourth quarter of last year. But then on the flip side, demand for propylene was extremely strong because most of it goes into PPEs. And so polypropylene non-wovens for face masks, for gowns was extremely strong. And in fact, we saw propylene demand in Q4 last year grow almost 7% over Q3. And so we saw demand strong and increasing, supply crashing, and it led to crazy price increases starting in December last year and into early this year, exacerbated by the freeze. And so when the freeze came in, it crashed everything. We saw propylene prices spot go over a buck a pound. It became a specialty chemical. And so it was just a crisis of magnitude with a bunch of, you could see the train wreck happening as we went through the year and kind of in slow motion. And then it finally came upon us. And so COVID's had a tremendous impact, certainly on that factor. On the ethylene side, now that people are getting out, they're getting stimulus payments, they're spending more money. We're starting to see ethylene rates go back up. And so theoretically, that should bring a little bit more supply to the market. Yeah. Do you think it's interesting? I don't think people inside the industry recognize some of the interconnectedness of it, but certainly people outside the chemical industry don't see what those knock-on effects are and understand how connected it is. You know, your point about, you know, when we're driving less and flying less and the refineries are operating at significantly lower rates, it then ends up having an effect, you know, all the way down the value chain to, you know, propylene, polypropylene, the face masks that we've all come to know, if not love. It's an interesting dynamic. So John, one of the things is how global of a market is propylene itself, right? So I know that, you know, propane, obviously a feedstock of choice is globally traded. I guess polypropylene is also to a certain extent because it's as a solid material, it's easily transportable, et cetera. How global is the propylene market or is it really still a regional market? That's a really good question. It is becoming more and more a global market. There used to be polymer grade propylene. In fact, I used to sell polymer grade propylene exports, but the unit, which was owned by Chevron, was damaged in a hurricane and never rebuilt it. So for the long time, we didn't have the capability to export polymer grade propylene, liquid polymer grade propylene, until Enterprise built their export facility probably what, a year and a half ago now. And so we were really limited to solid or propylene derivative exports. And overall, we would export nominally about 200,000 tons of propylene equivalents a month say, leading up till about the last year or so. But once PDHs got built and we had a lot more production, that level actually grew to maybe we were starting to approach 400,000 tons a month of propylene export derivatives. So it is a global market, certainly not as broad as ethylene, but it is there. And since most of your, and as we were referring before, that market's changing, the dynamics are changing. They're building an incredible number of PDHs in China you know, more than 20. And so they're really looking at exporting propane as their feedstock, whether it be from British Columbia due to the tremendous excess of propane out of Western Canada or out of the US. They have made the decision, we can bring the feedstock in with our lower capital cost units, make our uh, propane and propane derivatives and compete successfully and fight off derivative exports from say the US or Japan or Korea. Yeah. Well, that kind of ties to their 
long-term strategy viewpoint of being uh, much more self-reliant, certainly in this entire chemical and petrochemical space. So do you see that volatility in the propylene market reducing? I mean, when do you anticipate things coming quote unquote normal again, if we even know what normal is anymore? Well, you know, that's the one thing that was evidenced by this is that propylene is still a byproduct business, right? And so there's not enough on-purpose production yet to take swings out of the market. So it will always have the potential to have these wild swings because of that, you know, difference between a non-purpose product and a byproduct. They're just subject to extremely sensitive to supply and demand balances. So it will probably continue to be quite volatile once refining operating rates get back up, once we get all of our PDHs and our crackers running normally, I think supply will improve. And then we'll begin to see the prices begin to settle back down a little bit. I mean, so they went up about 40 cents a pound. They hit a top of 88 and a half. They've already come down about 37 cents or something. I think they closed at 57 this month. So you can just see goes up, goes down. And that really doesn't do anyone any good, right? It's so difficult as a propylene customer to consume, make your derivatives because you don't know what your prices are going to be. But the suppliers, I mean, it's a finite supply, right? And so if you've got too much demand, you got to kill off demand by price. It's always a challenge, a challenge to manage. It is a challenge. And it's like one that's not going to go away. So John, you know, you've been in the chemical industry for decades now and have seen a variety of changes. You know, if you were going to start over knowing what you do, would you still join this industry? And is this an industry that you recommend for people to join and participate in? Boy, that's a really interesting question. I do. I think that it's an outstanding industry. I think the people in it are tremendous. That I can really think of just one guy in my career from a customer supplier perspective who I had a little bit, not a huge issue. It was more, I've had more trouble with bosses than I've had with customers in the industry. (laughs) That happens a lot. (laughs) I sent you the note. I mean, the chemical industry kind of runs through my family, right? I married a customer and I never cut her price though. So I want you to know as hard as you try to negotiate, I never cut her price. And my son kind of following in dad's footsteps. He's got his undergraduate in chemistry. He's finishing his MBA right now at the University of Buffalo. And his first job was in chemical sales. So I think that he grew up listening to us talk about the industry over the dining room table and usually in the most positive ways. Although my wife would always think that the buyer was correct. And I would always think that the seller was correct. So he got to see both sides of the negotiation. But Yeah, I think it's fascinating. And that's one of the reasons I'm still working and I enjoy going to work every day is I learn something different every day from one of these guys. And I think that's a key for all of us when you're working. Try to learn something every single day. That's why I love going to work at IHS. We had so many subject matter experts I could learn from, you know, Peter Fang and Styrene or Nick Fafiatis and Pauliath. I was learning something every day, which I just found fascinating. Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating. So, John, you know, we've talked about the impact of COVID and kind of just the dynamics of what's going on here in the Olefins world. Let's turn the tables maybe a little bit more to you. So, you know, as we start seeing maybe some reopening of the economy, what what are you going to be doing in your free time now, you know, assuming we have some free time and assuming that economies reopen and you're able to get out and about, what are you looking forward to? Well, I'm kind of a, obviously I'm an old fashioned guy, right? I mean, to me, the human direct interaction is something I miss terribly. I miss going out and 
sitting down with customers and visiting their plants and, you know, kicking the tires and putting on my steel-toed shoes. And although I was just in a plant late last week, so things started to open up, but uh, you miss the the face-to-face human interaction, just like all of us. And, you know, from my perspective, I like to see people's face, I like to see the emotion. I hope we can get this mask thing behind us. So looking forward to getting out. And it's hard to develop relationships to build new business upon just over the phone or indirectly. I mean, you've got to put a lot of work into, what do they say, it takes nine calls to make your first sale. So it's been really you know, a struggle to try to really expand. So I look forward to, to getting out and, and expanding the horizons and learning something new. Awesome. Love it. John, thanks. This has been super great. Um, I've enjoyed talking with you. If people want to get in touch with you or learn more about you and learn more about Perrin, what should, how should they do that? Where can they go? They can email me. It's jstekla, S-T-E-K-L-A, at Perrin, P-E-R-I-N, resources.com. Feel free to, to send me a text. I'll be glad to talk to everyone. That was one of the things. All the advice we do is basically for free. And so when working with companies, I mean, while I will contract with people, you know, we're in people's plants trying to say, hey, look, you need to expand this truck turnaround area. You need to change this PGP offloading connection over here. So we really try to add a lot of value in what we do. So be glad to talk to anyone that would, you know, like to chat. Fabulous. Love it. All right, John. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you being on The Chemical Show, and I'm sure people will enjoy this podcast episode as well. Well, thanks, Victoria. Thank you again for having me on. I really appreciate it. Take care. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.